go ahead and turn to, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. One of the biggest questions I think I hear, one of the biggest debates I think uh, that, that I hear a lot in my discussions with people through the week is, do Baptists really believe once saved, always saved? I get that question a lot, and I hear people talking about it. And, and answering that question is kind of... Kind of tricky. It can be, depending on who you're talking to, uh, that can be kind of a, a hairy thing or a hairy subject to, to address because there's a ton of denominations out there. There's a ton of denominations. And what the, the, the part that gets real hairy is when you're talking to somebody who worships their denomination over God Himself. And there's a lot of people out there that do that. You know, I don't think they, I don't think people intentionally do it, but, but it happens. It does happen. And, and, and really, even though there are so many denominations, the truth is they, they all fall into two categories. No matter how many denominations, it's like over 30,000, I believe, Protestant denominations in the world. And, and no matter how many of them there are, they fall into two categories. You've got people who, who believe salvation by grace and those who believe in salvation by works. That's really, you're one or the other. And that's, and that's, how, it, that's how it is. And that's the... That's the dividing line, the biggest dividing line. And, you know, there are a lot of people, and they're, they're good-meaning people. Uh, they, they believe that a person can, can be lost again after he's been saved. Right? You know them. You've talked to them. You've had conversations with people. Then you've got those who, who are believers who, who believe a person who, who, that's been saved uh, will, will always be saved. His salvation is secure no matter what. Right? That's the two sides that we've got. And so here's what I want us to do today. I want us to, to examine what God actually says. All right? What God actually says on the subject. No matter what side of the fence you sit on, no matter uh, uh, what denomination people identify with, every person who calls themselves a Christian has a responsibility to know what they believe and why they believe it. Every Christian has a responsibility, a personal responsibility, to know what they believe and why they believe it. If all you can say about this doctrine and any other about why you believe it is that that's what you've always been taught, then, then you really don't know why you believe it. And ultimately, ultimately, your belief is faulty. It doesn't, it's not on solid ground, right? You have to personally know why you believe something. So let's see what God has to say about it. But before we get to the scripture, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, I personally think, we call it once saved, always saved, right? I personally think that we should uh, strike that phrase out of our vocabulary. I detest that phrase. Um, not, be, not because I don't believe it. Not because I don't believe it, but because that phrase has done more to arm Satan in keeping people lost in their sin than anything else. What it does is it leads people to fall victim to easy believism. It, it, it gives them the promise of eternal life, even if they're still living ungodly lives. That's what it does. And so if a person can be lost after they've truly been saved, then, then listen, sin's not what's most important. If a person can be lost after they've been saved, then sin's not what's most important. The important thing is, can that person be saved again? And it, it, so would you, is it possible for a person to be born again and again and again and again? Is that a possibility? Can you repeat a birth? Can you repeat a birth? 
So I want us to look at what the Bible says on this topic, and, and, and I don't want us to call it once saved, always saved. You can see it on the screen. I'd rather look at it as the eternal security of the child of God. The eternal security of the child of God. So if you'll go ahead, let's stand. We're going to read um, Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to skip over the chapter. Uh, we're, we'll start in, uh, in verse 1, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ, who are in Christ Jesus. Skip down to verse 28. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Let's get down to verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing created shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. And Lord, we thank you so much for gathering all of us here today whether it be those who are physically here with us inside this building or those who are, are watching uh, on, on Facebook, uh, Facebook Live, Lord, you brought them here to hear a message. Lord, you brought them here to hear your word, and I thank you for it. God, I pray now for illumination. I pray that you would illuminate the minds and the hearts of everyone who would hear this message. And God, I pray that you would speak through me. You would empty me of myself. And, and, and as I say all the time, take me around back and leave me there because there's no need for me. There, there's no need for me here. The only thing here that's needed is you, the Holy Spirit, and your word. So God, that's what we ask now in the holy, righteous, beautiful, and glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so... Like I said, there, there are good Christian people on both sides of this debate, right? And as I was studying this week, I ran across this article uh, written by a pastor. And, and I know this guy's saved. I believe him to be saved. So I know who he is. Uh, but here's what he wrote in the article. He said that if he sinned on a particular day and he did not ask for forgiveness, and then he died that same day, that he'd spend eternity in hell. That's what he said. Can I tell you, that's not what the Bible says. That's what he said, but that's not what Scripture says. That is what the Bible calls, or that's, that's what's called probated salvation. It's called probated salvation, and it's not a biblical view of salvation at all. Most people who, who subscribe to that view of salvation, they'll give you a ton of proof texts. They will. They've got a ton of proof texts, and, and none of them prove anything because they're mostly all taken out of context. All it is, really, is human reasoning that, that doesn't agree with God. It's, it's man-centered performance that removes the grace of God from salvation. That's what it is. So, so people who hold on to this view that you can lose your, salvations, lose your salvation, they do it for three reasons. They do it for three reasons. It's dependence on a feeling instead of a revealed act. Dependence on a feeling instead of a revealed act. Dependence on human reason instead of divine revelation. And more awareness of personal failures 
especially the failures of others, rather than on, uh, on the awareness of a personal Savior. That's why they do it. Uh, that's why they, they cling to this. And listen, any of those views when it relates to this, this doctrine is a deadly view. Uh, and you've got other people who, who cling to this because they feel like it's impossible for us to know whether or not we'll go to heaven when we die. They say, well, we'll just have to wait till we die and see where we go, see what happens. That's a miserable way to live. That's a miserable way for us to live. Uh, and, and I'm glad God's given us full assurance. He's given us complete, total, full assurance. Right now, while we're here on earth, He's given us the assurance that we're saved and we'll never again be unsaved. So let's start unpacking some of this. All right. The first thing we have to do is realize that biblically there's three stages of salvation of a person. There's three stages of salvation of a person. There's the commencement, there's the continuance, and then there's consummation. So the commencement's the beginning, right? It's the start. It's the conversion. It's regeneration. It's justification. All right, that's the commencement. Continuance is sanctification, right? That's our daily growing grace. And then the consummation is glorification, So which is all summed up in one word. Anybody know? Heaven. That's glorification. So the question is, uh, and that's what's facing us, I guess, this morning, is, is can a person who's been regenerated and justified and has been uh, converted and has, has had that beginning experience of salvation, can that person lose their salvation? No. That's right. Emphatically, no. They absolutely 100% cannot. But there's some who object to it. They object to the doctrine of eternal security of the believer. And listen, they'll object on a scriptural basis. They'll use scripture like we talked about. So what I want to do first is, is I wanted to, to deal with some of those scriptures that they use, some of those proof texts that they use. And one of them is Galatians 5.4. It says, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now that text is, is where we get the term fallen from grace. That's where it originated from and it's where it's come from. But it has nothing whatsoever to do with believers at all. It has nothing to do with saved people. This verse describes Jews who, who came face to face with the truth of salvation by grace through faith and they turned their back on it. They went back to religion. That's what this verse has in context. So Paul says these people have fallen away from grace. So we've we got to understand context. We talk about this all the time, but we have to understand context. You cannot make Scripture mean what the original author never intended for it to mean. You can make it, you, you can make it say, you, you know, you can take it out of context and make it say something it wasn't intended to mean, but you'd be wrong, right? You'd be taking it out of context. So what's the context of Galatians? It was a letter that was written as an argument, uh, and it was an argument against salvation by any other means than the grace of God. So over and over and over in the letter, he, Paul takes man's works, he takes it out of the equation and he, as a means of salvation. But he does, in, in Galatians, reveal the necessity of works as a result or as proof of salvation. All right, So works would be at the result of salvation. It would be the proof of a person's salvation, but it's not the source of a man's salvation. Right? Another proof text uh, is Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. And this is a tough one. This is one that they, um, I say they, but this is one that people who believe that you can lose your salvation, this is one they cling to. 
It says, For in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. That's a tough one. And, and they'll say, this is it. This is the text. This is the verse. This is what proves it. Proves it. But I don't see the word salvation used at all in that verse. I don't see the word apostasy used either. All right? And the Greek word for fall away is a complete different word. It's a complete different word with a totally different meaning. But the word salvation does pop up if you read on in, in, in Hebrews 6. If you read on a few verses later, verse 9, the writer says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though, the, though we are speaking in this way. So he calls them beloved. What's that mean in Scripture? When, 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 a, when an author calls the people he write, he's writing to beloved, what does that mean? It's believers. He's talking to believers. He's addressing believers. So he says he's justified and expecting fruit from them because they've been saved. That's what the text is saying. So listen, we've got to use proper hermeneutics when we're looking at Scripture. When we're studying Scripture, we have to use proper hermeneutics. Herman who? Herman. Hermeneutics. It's the science of biblical interpretation. That's what it is. And so one of the most important aspects of proper hermeneutics is, uh, is that the interpreter, the one doing the study, and should never build a doctrine on any unclear passage. We can't build a doctrine on an unclear passage. So any passage that has a, any degree of uncertainty should always be interpreted in light of passages that are crystal clear. Right? Any person who would attempt to build a doctrine of insecure salvation or a salvation that can be lost on this passage, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, going to find themselves with several dilemmas. All right? If you try to build that doctrine on this passage, you're going to find several problems. And really, if you look ahead in this very same chapter, um, verses 13 through 20, it's one of the greatest texts in all of Scripture about eternal security of the believer in this very same chapter. And the other thing I want you to realize about this is that if this text right here, verses 4 to 6 in Hebrews, if it teaches probated salvation, then it's also teaching that a person who's been saved and loses his salvation can never be saved again. That's what it says. It's exactly what it says. And look, I don't hear any group teaching that message. If they, They'll teach if you can lose your salvation, but they also teach that you can regain it some way too. But if, if we're going to say this text proves that you can lose your salvation, that you all, then you also have to go with what the rest of the text that says that you can never regain it either. Let me read you what uh, Dr. Uh, Wearsby says about this text. He says, You should note <clears throat> that the words crucify and put in verse 6 are, are in, uh, in the Greek are present participles. While they are crucifying and while they are putting him to open shame. So the writer didn't say that these people could never be brought to repentance, but they cannot be brought to repentance while they are treating Jesus Christ in such a shameful way. Once they stop disgracing Jesus in this way, they can be brought to repentance and renew their fellowship with God. So that, that gives us a basic a very, very basic understanding, a biblical understanding of the text, but a full understanding take more time than we've got today. 
All right? I mean, this is a pretty deep text. Anything in Hebrews is deep. So let's move on. Uh, another verse that's uh, used as a proof text is 1 John 3, 9. And it says, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now that verse is pretty simple, right? It's pretty simple, but it's a matter of proper interpretation. Using proper hermeneutics to properly interpret it. The verbs in this text are in present tense which means continuous action. They literally mean whoever is born of God does not habitually make it his practice to commit sin and cannot make it a habitual practice to keep on committing sin because he's born of God. That's what it's saying. And it also clearly says that the seed of God abides in him and remains in him. Well, that supports eternal security, does it not? It's like all the other texts that, that, that are used to, to try to prove a man can lose his salvation. It proves the exact opposite. It proves eternal security. All right? And look, we just scratched the surface here. Those are just three texts that are used as objections. But I, what I want to look at now and spend the most time lo us looking at is the actual doctrine itself. The doctrine of eternal security. So and we can approach it a bunch of different ways, but, but I want to kind of broad stroke it and, and show you that not only is the doctrine of eternal security true, but it's also necessary. Not only is it true, but it's also a necessity. So here's the first point. Finally, the first point, uh, the nature of the sinner. The nature of the sinner. So first thing, the, the nature of man makes this doctrine necessary if a single person's ever going to make it to heaven. All right? So two questions I'm going to start with. Two questions. Number one, on a scale of zero to 100, how sure are you right now in this very moment that you're going to spend eternity in heaven if you were to die today? How sure are you of that? And number two, on what foundation do you base your salvation? How sure are you that you're going to make it to heaven if you would die today on a scale of one to 100? And, how, and, and on what basis do you define that? On what foundation do you base that, rather? So, see, if you believe in, in probated, uncertain, insecure salvation, then part of your faith is rooted in what? Yourself. That's right. It's rooted in yourself. So ultimately, your salvation would depend on you if you believe you can lose your salvation. See, if you answer the question one, how sure are you on a scale of one to 100, if you answered anything other than 100, then you're trusting, at least in part, yourself. But if, and, and if you're dependent on yourself for salvation or security, even in the smallest amount, even in the smallest amount, then you don't have salvation at all. What you have is probation. That's what you have. So listen, think of it like this. If you're out on a boat, all right, say you're out on a boat, you're by yourself, you're out in the middle of a lake, your boat capsizes, all right? And you go in the water, but you can't swim. But at that very moment, at that very moment, I come by in my boat, and I reach my arm out, and I say, grab my arm, and I pull you into my boat. At that moment, you've been rescued, right? You've been saved, right? Well, then we start heading toward dry land. We start heading toward the bank. And as we're heading to the bank, you say something that offends me. All right, you say something that upsets me. Instead of, and I don't say a word. I just grab you and throw you back in the water, and let you drown. All right. Now you imagine that. Now if I reject you for something like that, something that, that's serious enough for me to throw you back in the water, throw you back overboard, and let you drown, do you think it's likely that I'm gonna listen to your pleas for me to save you a second time as you're flapping in the water? 
No, likely not. So now here's the question. The question is, did I really save you to start with? Did I really save you to start with? No. See, salvation would, would mean, mean that I removed you from the water, but then I placed you on dry land. That's total salvation. What I, what I provided at that point would be a temporary reprieve. It'd be a temporary reprieve, only probation, not salvation. And look, even the smallest bit of trust in yourself is deadly in the matter of salvation. Even the smallest bit. Why? Why is it deadly? Because we all sin. Every single day, we all sin. And Scripture says in 1 John, if you say you don't sin, if you say, hey, you have no sin, you're deceiving yourselves and the truth isn't in you. The Apostle John wrote, look, what he says, he, he wrote those words. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. John wrote those words and he included himself in it, right? The greatest apostle, the one Jesus loved the most, the one he was close to the most, he, he, he included himself in that. And the verb have is in the present tense in that text, meaning no Christian can ever claim to be totally free of sin this side of eternity, ever. All right? Our flesh is what? It's faulty. And it fails us. And we can't trust anything about our flesh or ourselves at all. Now, you got some people who obviously go deeper into sin than others. There's some people that obviously do that. But, but where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? If, we, if it's possible to be saved and then lose your salvation uh, and cease being a child of God, where's the line drawn? Would we say that, that if a person commits a certain sin, this, this certain sin over here, then, then that's when he ceases to be a child of God. Right? He's a Christian, but he commits this serious sin. And now that, because he did that, now he's not a child of God. It's okay if he commits these other sins over here. He can still be... He can continue being a Christian, but not this sin or this sin. Right? Who determines which sin are big enough to lose your salvation? Who determines that? You see the problem with that? It, it's a, it, it causes a seriously flawed view of salvation and sin. But sin's more critical to us than that. It, it's, it's more critical than what this view allows. The nature of man, both before and after salvation... It makes the doctrine of security of the believer an absolute necessity if you're going to get to heaven. And the truth is that if a single child of God, if even one truly repentant, reborn believer falls away and becomes a lost sinner again when he sins, then every saved person in the world falls away. Because we all sin. Right? And that means that only those who died... Listen to how crazy this is, but it's true. It took me a while to wrap my head around this. But the only ones that would be saved in that scenario would be that the people who are tr that, that are truly saved and then died the very moment they confessed their sin and were saved. Mm -hmm. right? right? It would mean that a believer, if a believer could be lost after he was saved, if he had any chance of getting to heaven, would, he would have to have a perfect sinless moment and die in that moment. Right? You realize what that does to the nature of God? Seriously, think about it. If God saves a person, I want you to think about this. Look at me as I say this. If God saves a person, then he sits back and he watches as that person sins and loses his salvation and goes to hell, then that makes God as merciless as Satan. It does. I mean, the least he could do is be merciful enough to save them while they were still saved or kill them while they were still saved. What kind of God would that be? What kind of God would we serve that would do that? 
I tell you what, it's not, it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God this book teaches us. The God of the Bible is the planner, the provider, and the perfecter of man's salvation. That's what he is, and he's also the protector of those who are saved. Let me tell you what Tozer says. Tozer says that God can never discover anything in our lives as believers that will cause him to change his mind about, being, uh, about our being in his family. When we trusted him for salvation, he was fully aware of every sin that we had ever committed and would ever commit in the future. He knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. All right? Scripture clearly teaches what he just said, clearly teaches that truth. God took man's nature into full account when he decided that he was going to move towards us in grace. He did. It's what the book says, Romans 5, 6, For while we were still centered, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right. Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 10, For if we, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So I want you to think about something. As I just read that, think about something. If God moved towards us in saving grace when we were helpless, when we were ungodly sinners, when we were his enemies, if he moved towards us while we were in that state and he was undeterred by our condition and he gave us salvation while we were in that state, then how can some honestly believe that he would be deterred by our actions after that? Does it make sense? It doesn't make sense that, oh, well, I, well I, you know, I don't care what you've done at this point, so I'm going to save you. You've done all this bad, but I'm going to save you. But, but you, can't do bad, you can't do anything wrong after I've saved you. I mean, he doesn't make us completely, totally sinless the moment that we're saved. Right? God's never, and here's another thing, God's never been surprised or shocked or astonished by anything in us. Like Dr. Rogers says, has it ever, ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? He's not, he's not going to probate us because of anything he finds in us as his children. All right, now that's not a license for us to sin. It's not a license to sin. It's just an admission of reality. That's what it is. God hates sin. And then guess what he does to his children? He instills that same hatred in us through sanctification. So if God saves us by grace, then he keeps us by grace. If we save ourselves to any degree, then we can lose our salvation. But because it's grace, by grace that we're saved through faith and not of yourselves, then salvation is totally, fully, 100% of God. All right, so that's the nature of the sinner. Now let's look at the nature of the Savior. The nature of the Savior. All right, so the nature of God makes this doctrine a necessity. All right, think of it in these terms. Guarantees, who are they usually offered by? Guarantees are usually offered by the manufacturer, not the consumer. Right? If, if what Scripture teaches us about God's true, then it's unthinkable that God would save a sinner one minute and allow him to be lost the next. So I want us to line some things up now. I want us to take what we know about God, what we know about Him, and line it up to the doctrine of eternal security. What kind of God is, the, is this God who saves us? Huh. 
What kind of God is this God who saves us? Well, first, he's a God of eternal purpose. He's a God of eternal purpose. And his purpose is clear in our text, Romans 8, 28 to 31. I'm going to read it again. And we know that God causes all things. Some things are all things. All things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, most people stop there. I'm going to keep reading. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, those these he also called. And, when, and whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these also he glorified. What then shall we say of the, to these things? If God's for us, who's against us? Right. Now, never let it be said that uh, we skip over the hard controversial scriptures here at Crossway. Look, we meet them head on. And why do we meet them head on? Because they're God's word too. And he wants us to know them just as much as the other ones. And listen, I know Baptists, when you hear the words election and predestination, you sit up straight. Right? You sit up straight. You don't like those words. Most of most Baptists anyway. But look, when you see these words in Scripture, let me tell you, it always means the same thing. It always has the same message. The message is never different. They're always the same. Simply put, these words mean that God has an eternal purpose for the believer in Christ. He's purposed to save him. He's purposed, uh, he's purposed to set him apart, uh, to serve God, and, and to glorify him. Right? So for the believer, God's purpose, really think about our lives. For the believer, God's purpose is virtually already completed. Right? He saved us. He set us out and set us apart for his service. All we're waiting now to do is die and be glorified, right? So what we're doing is serving him uh, at this point right now. So in Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Timothy 1, uh, the eternal purpose of God is absolutely plain. God has carefully, listen to me, God's carefully planned the believer's salvation before the foundation of the world. Like it or not, that's what the Bible says. He's carefully planned the believer's salvation before the foundation of the world. So it's absolutely 100% absurd for us to believe that a sinner who can't even save himself to begin with, right? A sinner can't save himself to begin with, so it's absurd for us to believe that that sinner who can't save himself could then do something to destroy the eternal purpose of God by becoming lost again. After God's purposed us to salvation and he went to extreme lengths, to purchase our salvation by killing his son. We think we can do something to destroy it? No. Also, the God who saves us is a God of infinite power. The God who saves us is a God of infinite power. So when God saves a sinner, his, his power is applied on behalf of the sinner. So that means that if God saves a man but can't keep him, now listen to this, if God saves a man but he can't keep him, then there's a greater power in the universe than God. If Satan can overpower Jesus to get one sinner, then he can overpower him to get us all. Right? It makes sense. Look, we know that, that, that there, are degrees, there are degrees of heaven, there are degrees of hell. Right? But there are zero, there's only one degree of security. There are no degrees of security. Every believer is equally secure with all other believers. So no believer is more or less secure than, in, than another. So if there's anything in the world that dishonors God, if there's anything in the world that dishonors Him, it's the teaching that attributes Him a halfway salvation. Does that make sense? 
If there's anything in the world that dishonors God, it's, it's if we attribute to Him a halfway salvation. Say that He halfway saved us. Philippians 1.16 says that, For I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So the only kind of salvation that's suitable to the power and purpose of God is a full and complete and eternal salvation. Amen? All right, so, so the God who saves, here's the next thing, the God who saves us is a God of passionate love for His children. Romans eight thirty eight and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Scripture teaches all throughout the Bible, all through the Bible, it says God loves all men, right? That's what it teaches. God loves all men. But it also teaches that God has a special redemptive love for His children. God loves all men, but He has a special love for His children. I mean, and that's the love Paul's referring to here. He's saying that nothing that a born-again believer could do or experience, whether past, present, or future, could ever separate him from the redemptive love of Christ. So the nature of the sinner, the nature of the, the Savior, that's what we've seen right now. Now let's look at the next one. It's, uh, it's uh, the nature of salvation. That's the third one. The nature of salvation makes, uh, makes this doctrine a necessity too. The nature of salvation. So this doctrine of eternal security um, for every born-again believer is completely and totally consistent with the message of the Bible. Right? What's inconsistent is the teaching that, that, that a believer can fall from grace. Every single text on salvation, I promise you, go look at it. Don't take my word for it. Every text, every verse on salvation either infers, implies, or plainly states the doctrine of eternal security. So let's look at some of them. Let's look at some of those texts. The first, uh, the fact that uh, is, the sal- is that salvation is by grace. All right, here's the first one. Salvation is by grace, right? That makes us the, to- the doctrine necessary. So the text would be Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 stands out like Mount Everest. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. You're not getting any clearer than that. I mean, that text leaves no questions. Should you have any questions about anything after reading that? Grace is the source, the supplier, and the sustainer of salvation, right? The term here in the text, you have been saved, is another perfect tense verb, meaning you stand forever saved. That's what it means. That's not what I'm saying. That's what the Bible teaches. So faith is the agent of salvation, right? And, and so man's character, man's performance, it has nothing to do with it. Faith is the agent of salvation. So here's the punchline of the text. I want you to get this. If salvation is by grace, but then a saved man can lose his salvation, then the grace of God isn't sufficient for salvation. Would it be? If grace, if salvation is by God's grace, but then a, then a saved man can lose his salvation, then God's grace must not be sufficient enough to sustain salvation. But not only is God's great grace powerful enough to save sinners, it's adequate enough to sustain and keep them. 
That's the truth. All right, so the next thing, the doctrine of justification by faith. The doctrine of justification by faith makes this doctrine necessary. So when a sinner, when a sinner, when a, when a lost person believes Jesus, he's justified, right? He's justified in, in, in God's sight. He's declared and counted righteous in God's sight. And not because he himself is righteous in his character or his conduct, but it's because of the righteousness of Christ. Right. It's credited to him at that point when he trusts Jesus. So so say a man is is accused of murder. All right. Think about this. Say a man is accused of murder. He's taken to court. He's taken before the judge. He's found guilty. He's sentenced to prison. All right. And a few years later, after he's been in jail for a while, he's up for parole and he gets released. All right. But he breaks the law again while he's out on parole. He breaks the law again. What happens? He's, that's right. He's going to go back to jail. He's hauled off back to jail. That's not how God operates. That's not how God operates. So when a sinner is justified, God doesn't let us out on parole, right? We're completely exonerated. He totally acquits us. So from the very moment, from that very moment that we're justified, we can never be tried or imprisoned again for the same offense, right? If the Son of God, or if the Son of God shall set you free, you'll be free indeed, right? So if a believer's not secure, then he's not, he's, if he's not secure in his salvation, then he's not uh, truly been justified. He's only on reprieve, right? He's only on parole. He's not justified at all. All right? That's the, do- the doctrine of justification by faith. Here's the next one, the doctrine of the new birth. The doctrine of the new birth makes this doctrine necessary. The doctrine of the new birth. Have you ever wondered... Why Jesus uses a birth as an example when he's talking to Nicodemus. It's a picture, when you think about a birth, it's a picture of a once-for-all event, right? It's something that can't be undone or repealed or repeated, can it? A birth can't be undone, it can't be repealed, it can't be repeated. So why use that example of a birth in salvation if it can be repealed and possibly repeated, as some would have you to believe? You can't repeal or repeat a birth physically, right? right. Can you? you can't be unborn. You know, well, I don't like my parents, so I want to be unborn. You, you can't do that. It makes no sense. But look, there's nothing in Scripture that claims you can be unborn. You know, even so, some would argue and insist, uh, insist that, that, that a birth can be canceled or it can be repealed. There's absolutely nothing in Scripture to support that claim at all. Birth is a once-for-all occurrence, and it's true spiritually just like it is physically, right? 2 Peter 1.4 says we are partakers of the divine nature. So what that means is the inner character of the believer instantly becomes an extension of the divine nature of God by a real birth right out of God. That's what it means. So the new believer, what do we keep when we're born again? We keep our flesh. We do. We keep our flesh. It gives us the opportunity for self and sin uh, to to reassert themselves in our lives. But the new nature cannot be repealed or repeated because we are born of God. Right? Amen? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He says, what a monstrous suggestion that a man can be a Christian one day and then he can sin and fall from grace and then on a later day become a Christian again. Such an idea implies a defective view of regeneration. All right. So here's the next one. The doctrine of su- the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus. 
The doctrine of the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus on the cross makes this doctrine necessary. Makes this doctrine necessary. So when he put, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid uh, at Calvary, and he paid for the sins uh, of all those that would ever believe in him. Uh, all my sins at that point, past, present, and future, he paid for them all at that point. Right? Right? Did he not? They were all placed on him. So when he cried out from the cross, it's finished. That's a perfect tense verb in the Greek again. That meaning it's consistently, continuously finished for all time. That's what it means. He made a perfect settlement for all my sin. And since all my sin had, had, sins had been perfectly paid for in full by his death on the cross, it'd be double jeopardy and an unnecessary second payment if an already settled account... If I went to hell after being saved, it'd be double jeopardy if I went to hell after being saved. Jesus says it's finished. And that text in the Greek means it's finished forever. Now, as far as salvation is concerned, all my sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. They've been removed. So God's not going to require two payments for sin. He's not going to require uh, a payment at Jesus' expense and then a payment at my expense. If a saved person becomes lost again, and then wanted to be saved again, which is totally unbiblical idea, then and that would require a literal second death on the cross of Jesus. And even then, that, that, that means that death could potentially be ineffective as the first one. Right? You see what this view of salvation says about the cross? Can you see what it says about the cross? It says that Jesus' death was ineffective. It requires my help to make it effective. It requires my help. If we believe a man could lose his salvation, then Jesus' death on the cross is ineffective. I'll tell you what that is. It's absurd and borderline blasphemous. Because it's finished means that when I'm saved, I'm forever saved. I'm forever secure because of the full and perfect settlement of the cross. All right, next thing, the intercessory work of Jesus in heaven makes the doctrine of eternal security a necessity. The intercessory work of Jesus in heaven makes the doctrine of eternal security a necessity. Hebrews 7, back to Hebrews. Hence also he, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, intercession in heaven wouldn't be really necessary unless believers on earth faced threat, right? And we do. We do. And we are threatened here. But if the threat that, we're, that we face, if that threat can turn into an eternal destruction of a believer, then the prayers of Jesus are wasted or inadequate. If the threat we face can turn into our, our going to hell, our eternal destruction as a believer then Jesus' intercessory for us, intercessory for believers, is inadequate or wasted. Now, can you imagine God rejecting any of Jesus' prayers? Can you imagine God the Father rejecting the Son, any prayer of the Son? John 17, Jesus says, I have lost none that you've given me. Now, this is the greatest prayer Jesus ever prayed. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Study it, learn it, bathe in it. It's the greatest prayer that you will ever study. The prayer that Jesus made for his disciples, John 17. He says, I have lost none that you have given me. And look, that's still true today. 
It was true then, it's still true today. But folks, they all, or you're giving folks a license to sin when you say that. When you tell them that, you tell them it's okay to live like the devil and still be saved. Look, I, I'm not offering anything to anybody. I'm not telling anybody anything. No, no, no conversion, no condemnation from me. All offers, of, all offers of salvation and security come from God. They're all made by God in this book. It's His Word. It's His truth. I'm just telling you what it says. All right? 1 John 2, 1, John said, My little children, my little children, believers, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So in other words, God's desire that a believer... Is, is for a believer not to commit sin. But look, God's a realist. All right, he's a realist. It was, I mean, it was, a desi- it was his desire for Adam not to sin. But what Adam do? He sinned, right? And God realistically dealt with it after he did. All right, he does the same thing for us. He does the same thing for his children. And then the, the, probably one of the greatest facts in God's revelation for the sinning believer is 1 John 2, 1, the second part of it. It says, and if anyone... And this letter was written to believers, right? If anyone, if anyone sin, then we, Christians, have, present tense, an advocate, a lawyer, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So for a person to stand with a, with a probated view of salvation, he's got to dismiss, the, dismiss this entire teaching by John. All right? And here's the last one I want to look at. The doctrine of of the believer's identification with Christ. The doctrine of the believer's identification with Christ. It makes the doctrine of eternal security necessary. All right? The Bible teaches that, that when a sinner is saved by the blood of Jesus, that believer is instantly transplanted out of Adam and into Christ. Right. So the phrase, in Christ. Anybody know how many times Paul used that phrase? 165 times in his letters. He used the phrase in Christ. Um, and, and that he used it to mean the same thing. It's the believer's new position in Christ. So, so from this point on for the believer, his identity and his security are established by his position in Christ. So Jesus is to the, think about it like this. Jesus is to the believer what the ark was to Noah and his family. Right? Say you have three barrels. Think of it like this. Say you got three barrels. You've got a you got a big barrel, you got a medium-sized barrel, you got a small barrel. And you put the you take and you put the medium-sized barrel in the bigger barrel. Right? Then you take the smaller barrel and you put it in the medium-sized barrel. At that point they're all stuck together. Right? They're all stuck. So if you wanted to get the sm- to, to the small barrel, then what you have to do is you gotta rip open the big barrel. Then you have to rip open the medium-sized barrel just to get to the small barrel, right? Well, for the sake of this illustration, the the Holy Spirit is the big barrel. God the Father is the medium-sized barrel, and uh, Christ is the small barrel. And us, we're inside the small barrel. So our life, was the text saying, my life is hid with Christ in God and sealed there by the Holy Spirit. So before Satan could get to any of us, before he could get to me, if I'm in that little barrel, then he's got to break the seal. So he'd have to overcome the Holy Spirit. He'd have to overcome God the Father and then Christ the Son. And then in that case, only then, all of the Godhead would be overcome, right, by Satan. That's the only security we have. Is in the Trinity. That's the only security that we have. So if Satan can get even one believer out and destroy him, that he'd have equal access to all believers. 
and he'd be more powerful than God. He would. Now, how ridiculous does that sound? It's ridiculous to think that every believer has become a member of Christ's body, right? Every member has become a member of Christ's body. So, and that happens the very moment that we have faith in Jesus. So, if we've all become a member of Christ's body the very moment we have faith, can you even fathom Jesus dismembering his own body? Can you fathom that? There's nothing even remotely close to that statement anywhere in Scripture. So, so if one born-again person could lose his salvation and then go to hell, that means that, that a member of Christ's own body is in hell. That's what it would mean. Alright, so I'm going to close this, and as I do, y'all go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8. I want to read this as we close. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse starting verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, though there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. And when they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. All right, so, so Jesus with his disciples right here, right? He's on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and they're caught in a storm at sea, and the disciples were scared to death. They were scared as all get out, and they, they hollered and cried out to Jesus. They say, we're going to drown. you got to save us, Jesus. Look, don't tell me that none of y'all have ever never, never felt like that. Don't say you've never felt like that. Even as a believer, every one of us have felt like that. But, but look, Jesus stood up. What did he do? He just spoke the storm down. He spoke the storm. The disciples were secure at that time. At that very moment, they were secure and safe, but they didn't know it. They didn't realize it because of the circumstance in their life, the immediate circumstance. But they had Jesus on board, right? And there was no way that boat would have sunk with Jesus on it. There was absolutely no way. It was destined to make it exactly where it was going, right? Look, I don't care what shows up in our life. I don't care what happens, how severe it may be. We are guaranteed as believers to get to the other side because Jesus is in us. He's on board in us. Right? All these doctrines we looked at, and, and there's a ton more that we didn't, but all these doctrines we talked about, they would amount to nothing if a single Christian were allowed to fall from grace. If there's anything that belittles God's salvation, it's the teaching of probated salvation. Right? The doctrine of eternal security of the child of God offers freedoms of, uh, freedom of security. It offers the biblical assurance of heaven, the possibility of happy faith. Right? You don't have happy or joyous faith if you think you can lose your salvation at any moment. The reality, it also offers the reality of a self-forgetting God and the encouragement of our service for Christ. And it's all because of God's grace providing salvation that's absolutely 100% eternally secure. Let's pray. Father, God, we love you and we thank you for your truth. God, I thank you right now that I couldn't become unsaved if I wanted to. Because the Holy Spirit 
has sealed me for the day that I'm glorified. And God, I thank you for that. I thank you that, that I'm not powerful enough to break the seal of the Holy Spirit. I'm not powerful enough to do what you determined to do before the foundation of the world. If I were, then that would make me more powerful than you, and I thank you that I'm not. God, thank you. Your plan is perfect. Thank you that, that, that you have thought everything out before you even created one speck of dust in this world. God, I pray now that as your gospel is proclaimed, that if there be any amongst us that don't have the eternal security of knowing that they are your child and that they are secured and would be your child and never be unsaved and never not be your child again, God, I pray that through the preaching of your gospel that you would regenerate dead hearts to life this morning. I ask you this now in the holy, the righteous, the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. All right, so as we start this invitation time, I just want to I just want to say that, that that you know, it it's a glorious thing to know that that you're saved and to know that you're secure. Amen. Amen. If anybody here does not have that assurance, if you can 100%, you can't 100% say that if you died right now, that if you left this building right now, pulled out onto the highway and got hit by an 18-wheeler, and you're not sure where you would go, then we need to have a conversation. I'll stay as long as I need to stay today. I don't have anywhere to go. Because the most important thing is, is the security of your salvation. Look, you can't save yourself. You can't. There's nothing you can do to gain your salvation. God requires perfection, and not a single one of us here are perfect. Jesus was the only one that was perfect. That's why he stepped out of heaven and into earth and lived the life that we couldn't live. And he faced the death that we couldn't face, took on our sin, and became our substitute. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, but not, not just your Savior, but as the Lord of your life, let's have a conversation about that today. During this time of invitation, I'd say I'd ask you to come down. Let's talk about it. If you if you've been visiting with us for a while, uh, at, you know, if you, if you're not a member of the church, and you want to talk about that, or if you want to talk about baptism, uh, it's a thin crowd today. I'm just saying that for the sake of saying it. But uh, uh, any, if you want to come to the altar and pray, but we're going to have this time of invitation. And as we do, I'd ask you to to come down.